Good morning, everyone. Lovely to be with all of you. Uh, I wasn't counting on having a handheld mic because I've got some props that I want to use, and I actually I use my hands a lot, so I'm not sure how this is, is going to work today, but um, we'll get there. Uh, so as, as um, Grant was saying, we're in week two of our Mark series, and uh, the title of my message today is, The Good News is Real and Here to Stay. I think we all know what it feels like uh, either now or at some point in our life to be waiting for good news. I think we can all identify with that. And I think we live in a world that is actually kind of constantly hoping and on the lookout um, for good news because we need good news. Um, there's, there's so much bad news and so many bad things happening around us all the time that we're constantly kind of waiting for something good to happen or for, or for the bad news to kind of go away. I think for us, it could be things like, you know, across Africa, in our context, there's maybe bad governance. You know, who's going to be the leader or the movement or or, or the person that's going to change things and and save us? Uh, Weak economies and high unemployment. What's going to create the jobs? What's going to boost the economy? Um, What about things like, we look around and we see all the violence against women. You know, when are are men going to stand up? Actually, men's role should be the opposite. They should be standing up for women and protecting women. When's this all going to change? When's it going to go the other way? And I think the latest one is probably coronavirus. You know, we're all kind of looking at, you know, what's happening in China, you know, out there. Normally, it's Africa that's got the Ebola. This time, there's this thing out there that's, you know, Africa's the only continent I think it hasn't come to so far. It's, It's fine. It can leave us out. But at the moment, the whole world is looking like... You know, which drug company is going to find the antidote? You know, who's going to, where's the good news? When are the rates of infections going to like start to come down a bit? Um, you know, or how can we just keep it outside of our borders? You know, what's our plan? What's, what's the good news that we have on that front? And I think when good news comes, it's often such a relief. You know, it's marked by joy and celebration and we, you know, it, it, it's always accompanied by those things. But the problem is that so often, you know, good news and breakthroughs is, is short-lived, you know, it's only a matter of time before something else kind of goes wrong. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm starting with the bad news today, because if I said to you, do you want the bad news or the good news, you, you, you would say it's human nature to say, I want the bad news before I hear the good news. Um, and also, us as humans, we often don't appreciate the good news. If I just came up here and started talking about good news, it, it wouldn't be as effective if you didn't know what the really, really bad news is. Um, so I want to suggest to you that... Actually, all these problems, all these things we see, they, we've got a much deeper, much more fundamental problem. I think the problems we see around us, those are just little manifestations of a much deeper, bigger problem. You can see those, all those things as like disconnected and kind of random. But actually, I want to suggest to you that they are all connected at a more fundamental level. And that our bad, the bad news for us is that uh, there's a much more fundamental, deeper bad news, something lurking uh, beneath it all, and something that lurks in the heart of man. Matthew 15, verse 19, puts it this way, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And I think only man's fallen nature, only the sin that can take root in our heart, only that and the presence of evil in the world is really big enough to explain the mess that we find the world in today. Ultimately, humans, we've lost our connection with our Creator. And as a result, we've lost our connection with each other. And we've lost our connection with the planet 
that we live in. Look at, look at the mess that the world is in. Look at climate change. I mean, if I were to apply my argument today to climate change, you know, we could say that, okay, this is the latest big problem that we really need to solve, and we, and, and we do. I'm not, under, I'm not a climate change denier. Just, you know, I know some might want to debate it. I'm not debating it. But, we, you know, we need to make a fundamental change. But why, why are we in this mess in the first place? And it's because of our reckless approach to our environment. We've lived in a planet where it's, you know, economic growth at all, at all costs. That's the most important thing. You know, let's extract as much as we can. Let's, let's fill our pockets. Let's fill our boots. We need to keep growing by at least, you know, 3 to 5%, maybe 9% like China. That's, that's amazing. And also, we've become totally hooked on convenience, hooked on comfort. And this is, this is ultimately a sign of self-love, how our love is turned, it's bent inwards on ourselves. And we, as long as I'm okay, as long as me and my own, me and my family are okay, and life is comfortable, and I'm not having to sacrifice too much, that's the ultimate thing. I, I want to suggest to you that climate change is a result of, we live in a fallen, a fallen planet where not everything's perfect, but ultimately because of our greed and our selfishness as humans. I know it's not a very inspiring start to the sermon, but I, I do need to paint a picture of bad news like you know, television companies and newspapers. They all know that you, when you understand the bad news, you become ready uh, for the good news. So let's re- relocate ourselves in the, in the book of Mark. As I said, it's uh, week two. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 8, and uh, Andre shared this idea of of Mark writing this gospel being like an MC, you know, he's the master of ceremony, he doesn't just, you know, introduce Jesus, rather he kind of brings in some secondary speakers, and you know, like the father of the bride, he he references Isaiah pointing towards, uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but pointing towards uh, Jesus coming one day, then he talks, he introduces John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, who, who comes before Jesus, as Isaiah said, and he says to the people, you know, make, 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 make way. The kingdom of heaven is near. You need to uh, repent and be baptized. And uh, we left off in verses 7 and 8 where John the Baptist, just before Jesus arrives on the scene, he says these words, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What, what, an, what an intro, and, and what a way that, that John is, is elevating Jesus. He's saying, look, you know, I'm baptizing now, and this is very important, but after me is coming someone that is way, way more important. Like, if you think this ministry is good, I mean, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the one that's coming after me. And all throughout verses 1 to 8, um, Mark is setting up that, that, the, that the one who's coming, that Jesus who's coming, is actually, the, he's the creator of the entire universe. So if you can turn to Mark chapter 1, we're going to pick up, we've got a short passage today, just uh, five verses, four verses, 9 to 13, uh, looking at the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. It should be on the screen as well. Thanks, John. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended to him. This is God's word. Can I pray for us before I continue? Father God, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for this gospel. And uh, Lord, I pray that today as we, as we look into it, as we uh, look into your word, that um, all of us would come away with a deeper, richer, and more powerful understanding of you, Jesus, of, of who you are and what you did and your significance to us. I pray that our minds and our hearts would be changed in a fundamental, level, fundamental way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is actually a, a very, very significant moment in Jesus' life because this is where he's launching his public ministry. He's, he's kind of leaving his private life uh, behind and he's, he's launching his ministry career on earth. And we don't really know too much. The Gospels don't tell us what's happened between like, his birth and you know, the Christmas story that we know so well. And here, where he's around 30 years of age, we do know that he went into exile in Egypt you know, to avoid Herod, who was killing all the firstborns. Uh, and we know a few things like uh, his parents, he went missing once. His parents couldn't find him. They found him in the synagogue teaching, and people were amazed at the quality of his teachings. Uh, we know that he was a, a carpenter. Uh, so it's not like he w- was unproductive and you know, still living at home when he was 30. But, but we, we don't know too much about what he got, got up to in, in his early uh, years. But here we see him, we see him coming and, and launching his, his ministry career. And uh, there's, there's so much actually happening in these few verses um, the, the first thing we see Jesus do when he's launching his career is go and get baptized by John. And there's several things that are, are kind of quite interesting about that. I've always, I've always just read this like, well, that's, you know, Jesus went to get baptized. Isaiah spoke about uh, John and Jesus. And, but, but it's quite interesting that, that Jesus decided uh, to get baptized by John. When John had said, the one coming after me, he's going to have a superior ministry to me. You know, I'm baptizing just with water, but the one after me is baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus decides to submit himself to this lesser baptism. Uh, you know, for those that were watching, for those, you know, queuing up to get baptized, for maybe the religious elite on the river banks, this, this would have been, uh, you know, a little bit odd. In some ways, it would be a huge discredit to his ministry, because in a way he's kind of putting himself under John. You know, you'd understand if Jesus came and started baptizing as well, uh, or if Jesus came and started to oversee John, or if Jesus was there standing next to John watching all of this happen. But for some reason, Jesus decides to submit to this baptism. Other thing is, we know John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, but, but Jesus is God and he's without sin. So he didn't actually need to partake in this baptism. In fact, John says to him when he comes to him, he says, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. So it does, does give us a bit of a question here. Why did Jesus get baptized? Um, some of these could be true. Um, some of them might not be. Um, but 
was it, for example, to affirm John the Baptist, to basically give, to say, yes, this is the one that came before me, and to affirm uh, John's ministry? And, and he certainly does do that. Uh, but there, were, there are other ways that he could have done that. Uh, like I said, he could have come and stood next to John while these baptisms were happening. He could have overseen the ministry. Um, he could have um, come and like, taken that specific ministry to a whole new level with John. I think getting baptized by John, especially to the onlookers, as I said, it, was, it would have been a, st- a step too far if he was just wanting to affirm John's ministry. Was it to reveal his identity? Okay? And that, that certainly happens in the baptism of Jesus. You know, there's this incredible uh, revelation of Jesus as God's Son. And it's what, what the most vivid picture that we have of the Trinity. As he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends on Jesus. Then we have this voice from heaven, the Father, saying, You are my Son. And you've got this beautiful picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together in mutual affirmation and submission. They're all there in the picture for us. Next time someone says to you, you don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, you can, you can agree with them. But then make sure you take them to this passage and show them this picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and explain to them that the term Trinity is explaining this reality of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We did a series on this about 18 months ago, uh, which you can find on the Common Ground website. So he does reveal his identity, but was that the reason? He could have done that a different way. What was the reason he got baptized? Was it to receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit for his ministry? Uh, and I want to say again, Jesus would have been very familiar with the Holy Spirit. He would have been working with the Holy Spirit already. It's the Holy Spirit that causes the Virgin Mary to conceive of child. You know, he, he does receive a, a, an anointing in this picture, but he already has the Holy Spirit. So I want to suggest maybe there's another reason. Was it to model to us the importance of baptism and hope that we would follow his example? And I think it's incredibly helpful that Jesus himself did get baptized. Because if he didn't, we might kind of wonder, well, you know, Jesus didn't get baptized. Is it necessary for me? You know, and I kind of, what, what would Jesus do kind of thing? And I think it's, as I say, the fact that he did it, that he, he, he models it and later he instructs it and tells us that we should, we should repent and be baptized and that baptism should follow us crossing the line of faith, uh, is, is unequivocal for me. And I think, um, if, for me, baptism was such a, I find it was such a kind of line uh, in the sand for me personally. I, I got baptized when I was about uh, 16 or 17. So for me, it was really like a, I feel I was old enough to make this kind of conscious decision. Before that, I felt like I had given my life to Christ, and I, and I feel like I had, um, I feel like I was saved, I was going to heaven, but my parents didn't put any pressure on me to get baptized, because I think what they saw is that baptism always follows repentance, and repentance means to change your mind. You know, it's not just saying you're sorry, it's a changing of your mind, and actually like going in a completely de- different, decoration, uh, <laughs> sorry, different direction. 
And so in order to do that, you, need to, you, you, you really need to be of an age where you can make that decision for yourself. I would love to go and baptize my three kids now, you know, and, uh, and, and I wish that assured me of them getting to know Jesus and one day going to heaven. But that's something that they need to do for themselves. You know, I can, I can set them up as, as much as possible. And I think one thing that we do do at uh, Common Ground is we do dedications, which is a blessing, is when you take this young life, this gift that God has given you, and you, in a sense, give that life back to God, and you dedicate yourself to raising that child in the ways of God. That's, that's really good. But when it comes to baptism, that really is a decision that you need to make for yourself. And for me, uh, there was such power that came into my walk when I got baptized. For me, it was the first time that the scriptures, I feel like I received the Holy Spirit for the first time. After I got baptized, I had this insane love for the scriptures. I think for a year or two after that, I, I couldn't put my Bible down. I think I, and I'm not boasting here because I'm not doing this at the moment. But I remember I, I, I would spend an hour every single morning in the scriptures. And it was the Holy Spirit inside of me illuminating those scriptures to me. And so baptism, I think it was just such a wonderful way of making a public declaration to those around me that, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus. This is the way that I'm going to. And it's, it's something that's so central to the Great Commission, as we'll see uh, in Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the disciples, sorry, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, he saw him, when they saw him, he worshipped, they worshipped him. Sorry, can I just have some water quick? <laughs> I'll start again. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So baptism is something ordained and modeled by Jesus Christ. And it's something that we... Uh, that we practice, um, as well as uh, baby dedications for, for, our, for our kids. Uh, but if we really want to know why Jesus was baptized, we need to look at the reason he gave himself. He actually, not in, not in Mark, uh, Mark, the Mark account of this is very kind of straight to the point and sharpshooter. But if we look in Matthew chapter 3, we actually see a little bit more. Uh, so Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 13 to 17 we, we actually see the answer to this question, why did Jesus get baptized? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And here it is. Check this out. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. It's, like a, it's an interesting phrase. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, no, John, 
you need to baptize me. We, we need to do this now. We, we're going to do this thing. To fulfill all righteousness. What, what did he mean by all righteousness? You know, righteousness is, is the quality of being morally right and justifiable. You know, it's, it's being in right standing with God. It's being you know, in the right, being correct, being 100% guilt-free. But Jesus already has all of these things. So he's not talking about getting his own righteousness. It's not something he's doing. He's not submitting himself to baptism because he needs it for himself. He's doing it because somehow it was a way to fulfill all righteousness. He's talking about everyone's righteousness. He's talking about our righteousness. He's doing this for you and he's doing it for me. And what's so incredible about that is that the way Jesus starts his public ministry is not, is not up on a stage. It's not with a big marquee tent. It's not booking the CTICC. It's not you know, on top of Table Mountain. Uh, you know, it, it, the way he starts his public ministry is with a clear and very, very public identification with sinners. Rather than joining the, the religious elite on the banks, uh, rather than, you know, or at least John, as I've said, he chooses to be in loving communion with us. He's numbering himself amongst the sinners, amongst the transgressions, and by joining us in the river, he's making our burden of sin his very own. He's identifying with us. Luke 22, verse 37 says, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressions. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. There's something really beautiful about this, about Jesus coming into that river. He's insisting on becoming like us when he comes into that river. You know, rather than coming to that river to purify himself, he's coming into that river to be with us in all our dirt and all our muck. And as we continue to journey through Mark, we're actually going to see that Jesus does this over and over again. He, he's always getting up close and personal with the sinners and with the sick. He's eating with social outcasts like tax collectors. And he's hanging out with sinners like prostitutes. And he's getting so close in crowds and so like in amongst it all that people are able to just reach out and touch his cloak for their healing. And he washes people's feet. You know, there's no more personal, up close, intimate thing than washing the dust and I'll say it and the toe jam off a person's foot. I mean, this is, I don't know how you can identify with humanity more closely than that. And, and here's, another, here's another amazing thing we see in this scripture. How, how do the rest of the Trinity feel about Jesus doing this? This very clear identification with sinners, you know, getting involved in all our muck in the Jordan River. Do they, do they look away? Do they abandon him? No. The Spirit rushes onto him. And there's this voice from heaven that says, You are my son whom I love with you, I am well pleased. He receives the, the Holy Spirit's anointing and he receives his father's affirmation at that very point that he's 
identifying with sinners. I can almost, <clears throat> I can almost imagine, you know, in heaven, as this, you know, the darling of heaven, Jesus, goes on this rescue mission. I can almost imagine the whole of heaven looking down and going, and going, he, he's, he's doing it. Look, he's doing, he's, how, how incredible. I can imagine the angelic host and the, this Holy Spirit and the Father looking and just being amazed at what the Son is doing. They, they don't look away at that point. We know later on the cross they look away when he becomes sin. And the Holy Father cannot gaze on sin because he is holy. But at this point, we see that this rescue mission is not just Jesus going, you know, because the Father's grumpy and, you know, there's this problem and he's going to solve it and he's going to be our Savior. No, this rescue mission is an all Trinity inspired affair. It's their plan. It's their idea. And so what's amazing is that Jesus' earthly ministry, starting with baptism, he starts with baptism, which is exactly the same way he intends to finish. His step into the Jordan is a step towards the cross. In both places, the, the, the king of glory is totally out of place, yet he chooses to do it. He chooses to become like us. And if, if we don't understand this. If we don't understand why that's important, it, this won't seem like good news. If he didn't come, become one of us, he couldn't take the penalty for sin. He wouldn't be able to represent man on that cross. And so you see, I brought with me two jumper leads. I don't know about you guys, but I usually like to use my key when I start my car, but um, I'm actually terrible with batteries. I have very bad luck, so I'm very experienced with, with jumper leads. But one thing about jumper leads is they both need to work in order for the power to flow and in order for the car, the, the battery, the power to transfer from one thing to another. So that the one ingredient here is that Jesus had to become like us. He had to become a man if this rescue mission was going to work. So I'm going to just take this first jumper lead. And that's this idea of Jesus like us. And I was just going to show you jumper leads, but I'm improving here. And I'm going to... Okay, that's not going to work. Okay. Okay. So that's the, that's the first half of this analogy. Jesus chose to become like us. And if he hadn't done that, he couldn't take our penalty that was due to us as a human race. So we got that. But Jesus is also completely different to us. And that's the other jumper cable that I've brought with me. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I want us to... Um, just look at the second part of uh, today's passage. And we see that immediately after this baptism, baptism of Christ, where he affirms and identifies with us, what is the first thing that happens? It's, it's actually quite incredible. And again, in the context of, his, of, of him launching his public ministry, the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit takes him you know, he's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's had his identity affirmed. And then the Holy Spirit takes him out into the desert. 
Now, I don't know much about ministry, honestly, but I, I know that it involves people. And if you want to have a big ministry, and if you want to minister, you need to go where the people are. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit, well, the first place that Jesus goes and is led by the Holy Spirit is out into the desert. You might be thinking, well, that was kind of quite normal for Jesus to pray and find solitude. And I think that there is an element of, of, of that happening here. He definitely would have been able to go and do that out in the desert. But the interesting thing about this time in the desert, it's not talking too much about you know, the solitude, although he did you know, pray and fast. The interesting thing that the scripture highlights to us about this time in the desert was the encounter with Satan. There's, and I want to suggest to you that that wasn't like by chance. That, you know, Satan, we know he's, you know, prowling all the time, always looking to undermine, that he just happened to be there. Uh, or that there was like some sort of misstep. You know, Jesus shouldn't have been in the desert anyway. No, we know the, we know the Holy Spirit took him there. And I want to suggest that this encounter with Satan, rather than a, you know, a surprise encounter or a misstep, This was a deliberate and divine move for which Jesus was prepared and commissioned. So rather than it being something where he was on the back back foot having to like, you know, fend off Satan, you know, like defend on the complete defensive. I want to suggest that he was the one on the offensive and that Satan was the one that was quaking in this encounter. I want to suggest that Jesus is starting his earthly ministry again in a way that he wants to continue, and, in, and it's pointing to an ultimate thing that he's going to do. And one of the things that the Bible tells us is that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. And that is something that he ultimately does on the cross. In 1 John 3 verse 17, it says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, uh, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And, And here we go. Here's what I want to draw attention to. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is serving notice on Satan. And I want to suggest that Satan is the one here on the back foot doing his utmost to offer a different solution. You know, to say to Jesus, look, maybe you don't need to go to the cross. Maybe we can, maybe we can settle this now. He's, he's kind of trying to negotiate. And he's trying to, you know, offer these tests and these, these temptations so that ultimately Jesus can abandon his mission. He questions his identity. And he, and he does that to us. Offering all sorts of uh, material things and comfort, appealing to Jesus and our egos, appealing to our sense of pride, yet Jesus doesn't give in. And why was he able to, 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 to how come the, these tests and temptations, he was able to rebuff them so easily? I want to say, first of all, we know he's just come from his baptism where he's had his identity affirmed. You know, the father said, you are my son. But Satan, in all the temptation, if you read in, in a version in one of the other Gospels, in Matthew, Satan always says, oh, you, you know, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. He, and, and he does that to us. The first point that the enemy wants to attack us is to say to us, did God really say, are you really a child of God? 
And um, because Jesus has had, he's, he's had that voice of heaven is still ringing in his ears. He has no identity crisis. I want to suggest that a lot of our sin is, is tied up in, a, in an identity kind of issue. Why, why does a man leave his wife, you know, and commit adultery? I don't think it's because the other woman is so beautiful. I want to suggest that it's because of an identity crisis. The feeling that, man, if I was with that other person, I would be more complete. I would be a different person. I'd be more charming. I'd be more funny. I'd be more X, Y, and Z. It's, it, it's identity issues cause us to sin. The next reason Jesus was able to resist temptation was he was full of the Holy Spirit. He'd just been anointed immediately before there and led there by the Holy Spirit. He was on the front foot. If Jesus needed that, and this is not just for ministry, it's, this, is for, this is for being a Christ follower. How much, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to resist temptation, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit every day? And then a third thing that you see is that every time Satan offers him something, Jesus quotes God's word. If the, the living word is quoting the written word and he, and he rebuffs Satan's uh, arguments, now how much more if Jesus, the living word, has got the, the, you know, the, the written word committed to memory and he knows the word, how much more do you and I need to have God's word written on our hearts? And we're incredibly vulnerable if we don't have those things. If we don't have our identity issues uh, sorted, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, and if we don't have God's Word written on our hearts. And so can you see the amazing truth in today's uh, passage? On the one hand, Jesus is like us, and He comes to identify with us. But secondly, Jesus is completely different to us. He's the only Son of God he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. And that's what makes him the only one qualified to take away the sins of the world. The only one who can make, who can take it all away, because he was those two things. I think so often we spend time trying to present and, and, and create our own righteousness. You know, we, we try and generate that within, but it's, it's never going to be enough. And it's already been done. It's completely finished. Sometimes we w- walk around with one of these. You know, this is, this is kind of us. This is how we're trying to generate our righteousness. We're trying to, st- you know, the analogy is not even perfect. Trying to start a car with this is never, ever, ever going to work. I won't even charge my phone for more than 45 minutes. We need something much more powerful. And you can see the analogy hanging there. And John the Baptist, in John 1 verse 29, he he saw this straight away. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is incredibly good news. And this good news is real. This this good news is a person. This This good news is a person that identified with us and came up close and personal to us as we were stuck in all our muck and our shame. And the extra good news is that this good news is here to stay. And we have Jesus who right now is interceding on our behalf with the Father. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If I can uh, ask the band to come up, I think Jesus identifies with us so powerfully. And one of the ways that us as Christ followers can, uh, can draw close to him and, uh, and identify with him is by participating in the Lord's Supper together. Uh, if you've not crossed the line of faith, if you're still investigating, uh, you're not obliged to participate in this meal. It really is a, a believer's meal. Um, so can I invite you guys, if you do want to participate, to come up and get some uh, bread and some grape juice and then head back to your seat and hold on to it so that we can drink together.